0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience so that you and I can make the least amount of mistakes as possible and succeed a lot faster. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because I value your time and you are here to learn. With that, in the last episode, we learned an incredible story of how a single mother went from being on food stamps... To becoming a multi millionaire real estate investor. A very humbling story. In this episode, we are interviewing Jeremy Roll. He is a passive investor and started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. He is also the co-founder of For Investors by Investors, a non-profit organization with the goal of networking and learning among real estate investors, in a no sales pitch environment. We are breaking down this interview into two parts because there is a lot of really valuable information for anyone who is interested in doing a syndication in regards to what your potential investors will be looking for on not only you as an operator, but also on the deal. And then on the next part, we're going to learn what he likes and doesn't like about each commercial asset class. Here we go. Jeremy, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us today. Why don't we get started and learn a little bit about your story and how you got into real estate?
1: Sure. You know, I like to call myself a full-time passive cash flow investor. And the reason why I got into real estate is because I wanted to get out of the stock market. So this goes back now to 2002, where after the dot-com crash, for those of you listening who remember that, I was sick and tired of the stock market for two primary reasons. One was the volatility, which I'm just a really low-risk, slow-and-steady guy. So watching the market go up and down 30% in a year, which just was not for me. But more importantly, honestly, was the lack of predictability for my retirement account. So in other words, where would my retirement account be in 10, 20, 30 years, given that it's just very hard to predict where the stock market's going at a given time? And the way that I concluded how I could find predictability was in what I call kind of lower risk passive cash flow opportunities. And it ended up being that real estate was the main source that I found that was probably the best source for me. I typically invest in commercial real estate and some multifamily. As a result, I normally target about an 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized building. May or may not have any value add upside. That's kind of um, optional for me. And I truly want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because for me, I started investing in 2002 in real estate and by 2007, The cash flow, the passive cash flow actually got me out of the corporate world.
0: You mentioned that you got out of the stock market. Are you 100% out or do you still invest in some stocks?
1: No, I am 100% out. I am all in on this cash flow strategy because it's completely changed my life. The last time I think I owned stocks was 2007. I kind of rotated out of stocks and bonds into cash flow between 2002 and 2007.
0: Quite a timing to get out. That's impressive.
1: It's funny because I also put a pause on my real estate investing between 2005 and 2008, except for unusual opportunities, because I was worried about a downturn. But I had sold everything off on the the stock market side by 2007.
0: Congratulations. You are a full-time passive investor. That means that you are investing in other people's deals. How do you evaluate an operator before investing with them?
1: Great question. And you know, I want to stress the fact, because you asked a good question, that the operator to me is even more important than the opportunity. I would say that's number one. Number two is the actual opportunity itself. And I want to be clear, too, that the actual opportunity, the property you're investing in is very critical, clearly. But who you're making a bet on when you invest passively is absolutely critical. And the reason is because typically when you're investing passively in the way that I do it, I invest in what's called syndications, And what that means is that they're pulling a number of investors together, could be several or many investors, into an LLC and we're typically buying a property. And when you do that as an investor, um, you're considered a limited partner or in, in the LLC or the actual entity you're investing in. And when you're a limited partner, you're essentially giving up control. Not only are you giving up control, but you do have a vote for certain things, but your vote is very, very, very small percentage. Essentially, you're giving up control and you don't have too much of a vote. So who you're making a bet on is absolutely critical. And I'm going to try and keep it high level because we could, we could talk about this for a long, long time. The first thing I'll say is I look for an operator who's conservative who's looking to underpromise and over deliver and build longer term relationships with investors. And I tried to avoid operators who are aggressive with their assumptions and their projections to make the numbers look really good so that they can attract investors based on the projected returns, but that they may or may not perform to projections and they don't usually care as much whether they do because they'll just kind of go on and find new investors if they have to, right? Because they're not thinking long-term as far as investor mindset. Now, the tricky part is how you kind of sort all that out. And when you review an opportunity, the numbers will tell you a lot about whether someone's conservative or not. They won't tell you the whole story, but that's a good place to start. And then from there, I'm just very detailed myself, so I ask a lot of questions. It's very common for me to ask 150 to 250 questions about an opportunity. Some of those questions are going to be purposely designed and asked. I don't necessarily care about what the answer is. It's more how they answer it and reading between the lines. If someone's answering me in certain ways and saying, well, we believe this property is going to do X and Y, but we... We use this assumption, which is much more conservative because we want to make sure we were conservative for investors. We think it's going to overperform, but we want to set the right expectations, right? That type of an answer to me is very valuable. It tells me their mindset. If I ask the question, why did you assume that rents were going to go up on average 5% per year for the next 10 years? And they say, well, rents are actually going up really strongly in this area. It's been booming and we just don't see that stopping, okay? <laughs> wow. Me, not only is that not really, in my opinion, realistic, but it's also setting expectations that are probably too high for investors, the numbers are going to look great. But that also tells you a lot about the personality you're dealing with. And in the end of the day, what you're trying to do is assess who you're making a bet on, how thorough have they been in analyzing the property. That's just one example of how you do it. I would tell people that I do background checks every time on all of the key managers and the opportunity. I don't usually invest with someone unless I met them in person at least once. And that's because I am a very firm believer in doing a gut check after doing all your due diligence. Are you 100% sure you want to invest with someone or is there this 5% question mark? You don't even know why, but your gut's telling you that it's not a perfect scenario and maybe you should pass, right? That's a very important thing. And I feel like meeting in person is an important part of that process. I know it's very hard for some passive investors to do, but it's part of my formula. Another thing I could tell you too is if you look at the legal documents sometimes, which are very important, they may tell you a little bit about is this operator looking to make this a win-win type of structure for investors, whether it's preferred return, profit splits. I could tell you some examples of some rules where it's very obvious that they're not trying to make anything in favor of in investors. They're kind of working at it to get them maximize the situation for themselves. When I see an operator not trying to get a balance between the investors and themselves as far as profits, That also tells me I'm just not aligned with the operator properly from a philosophical perspective. The bottom line is that who you're making about is the most important thing. And I'm glad you asked the question because it's a critical thing to focus on for passive investors.
0: And then on the numbers side of the house, is it important to you if an operator pays themselves or not up front or in the middle or in the end? I've heard both sides. What is your take there?
1: I look for a balance. And so I'm a firm believer that they should get some money up front because they spent months and months trying to find a property. They've spent weeks and weeks doing due diligence on it and spent a lot of money on it themselves out of their own pocket, et cetera. So I believe in getting a nice balance. But I also believe that as an investor, I need to, it's my duty to know what the market is as far, what I mean by market, I mean, how much of an acquisition fee range is typically market rate between X and Y percent. If it's out of those bounds, I don't really think that's fair. And it's important to know what those bounds are because it's already telling you something about the operator. If you know what the bounds should be and it's out of bounds, it could be out of bounds high or low. Sometimes it's out of bounds low, meaning I don't think they're taking enough upfront fee. It could be zero or 0.5 or whatever it is. And I would recommend that they take a little more because in the end of the day, if I'm going to make a bet on someone, I want them to be incentivized. If the profit split is too in favor of investors, I get a little bit concerned. Mm If it's not enough in favor of investors, I'm even more concerned for myself. And you got to understand, too, that when you're making all these assessments of the fees, in the end of the day, as an investor, the same building that you could be investing in could be structured 50 different ways in terms of fees and splits. So each different way is going to have consequences both from how motivated is the operator, but also what is your risk reward ratio? In other words, you're going to take the same risk on the same building, assuming the operator is similar across all of them, And you're going to get a different return depending on how it's structured. You want to make sure you get a fair return. And I I don't believe in getting an outsized return where the operator isn't making enough money. I don't think that's fair. But I also don't believe in taking on less return for the same risk for myself. And that's why it's important to really understand the market rates and what investors should be getting and I like landing in in the middle.
0: Are you comfortable sharing what would be a standard set of numbers that you like to see let's say two percent up front and then them putting some money on the deal?
1: Well you'd have to tell me um, how big the opportunity is how much work they're doing like you'd have to give me an example, because that will vary depending on whether it's a one million dollar acquisition, a one hundred million dollar acquisition, a ten million dollar acquisition. Whether it's value add, stabilized, how experienced is the operator? If you can give me some more criteria, I can give you more precision. Or if you want, I can just give you high level how I think about these things.
0: High level works. Let's say value add and someone that has done a few properties already.
1: So what's the purchase price? Let's roughly. say.
0: Three to $5 million.
1: So to me, like I normally invest in properties that are 10 to 25 million, which is kind of the upper end of what I call non institutional, where you're not bidding up against large hedge funds typically, but you're getting a lot of scale and a lot of 10 diversification still. Let's say a $3 million property. 3% of a $3 million property is very different than 3% of a $100 million property, right? To me, it's on the lower side. And I believe that the lower the acquisition is, the more I can justify and understand a higher percentage. If I saw somewhere in the 2 to 3% range on a $3 million deal, I think that was reasonable. I think some people might think that's high because they're used to seeing 1% or 2% on larger deals. But I, you got to take a look at the absolute dollars that the operator is getting, in my opinion. If you do 1% on a $3 million deal and they're getting $30,000 and they've come out of pocket, all of these travel costs and everything else, and they're they're actually spent more money than they're recuperating to begin with, it's already starting off on a challenging foot from the operator perspective. So that's kind of my take on the acquisition fee in that range, especially for Valley I, where they're going to do more work. What other metrics do you want me to go through for that?
0: I know that a lot of investors think it's very important that the operator puts some of their money into the deal. Is that important to you as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so optimally, I love to see a 10% co-investment. I wouldn't expect a penny more than that, and that would be optimal. I'm completely fine with a 5% co-investment. I think that where I have a personal trouble is if someone's putting in 0% co-investment. Now, if someone is extremely experienced, let me give you a real life example. I I have investments with two of the top 40 self-storage operators in the US. One of them, if I recall correctly, owns maybe 40 to 50 plus properties. Can I expect that they have enough equity between loan guarantees, other things, that they'll be able to co-invest 10% in every single deal across 50 deals? I just don't think that's reasonable. And not only that, but I also think that it's probably not as necessary because with the amount of experience they have, they're going to be more attractive to investors. And I guess what I'm saying too is that typically when someone has more experience, I believe it helps to reduce risk, right? So personally, I'm willing for them to go with a smaller co-invest and sometimes even no co-invest. The concept of me being able to invest in a top 40 self-storage operator in the US, am I willing to give up a co-invest in exchange for all that experience and their knowledge and their contacts and their efficiencies and their economies of scale? Sure. And the answer that I'll give you is personally, yes. I know there are some investors that would say no, but I'm actually okay with that. And it's going to be a sliding scale for me depending on how experienced the operator is.
0: You are a very fair investor.
1: <laughs> well, When you're an investor in real estate, in these types of opportunities, what you have to understand is you're investing in a business. It's got income, it's got expenses, someone's running a property, and I am a big believer in the partner that you're investing with having their fair share of the profits. I'm also a big believer in making sure that I get the right risk-reward ratio for myself. So that's why I always look for a balance.
0: Now that we know how you evaluate an operator, and that's the number one priority, obviously, How do you evaluate the deal itself?
1: That again, could be a very long podcast on its own. High level. I call it trust, but verify. And what I mean by that is that I'm going to put trust in this operator that they really know what they're doing. And I I typically invest with more experienced operators and they they normally do have a lot of experience and know what they're doing. But I also want to verify. And what I mean by that is that let's assume that I've already agreed that the business plan looks good to me. Like I'm on the same page in terms of what I'm looking for. It's meeting my criteria. Then I'm going to try to verify that they've done their homework in terms of, is this the right market to invest in? Is this the right location to invest in that market? Where is this market going to be in five or 10 years? I'll ask to see what data sources and what data they've used to actually justify that this market makes sense to invest in. So that's taking a look at what they've done, verifying. But I'll also then do separate analysis myself on just to kind of collaborate or corroborate that data as far as like, okay, they use this data source. That data source is only one data source. If you look at another one, it might be different, right? And they have Mm -hmm. a different opinion about this area. So I'll cross-check it against another data source just to see if it all kind of jives and it's similar. For comps, for example, when you're comparing the rent pricing and even the price you're paying for the property, I'm going to verify, have they done their homework? And more importantly, do I actually, not more importantly, equally as importantly, if they've done their homework and I'm able to verify that, do I agree with the comps that they used? You can do a lot of things with numbers. You know, when I was in the corporate world, I used to be used to do a lot of stuff with numbers and you can make them look a thousand different ways, right? And so oh, yeah. the question is like, do you think that they use the correct comps? And that's some of the homework you're gonna have to do to make sure that you agree with the way that they've analyzed the building. And that's very, very important on the rent side and on the pricing side, even. One thing I will tell you that's an intangible that I love to do is when I'm meeting someone in person, it's typically gonna be at the property. And there's two different types of meetings I can have, I call it, right? One is like someone meets me at the property and they tour me around the property and they're showing me all the the reasons why they wanna acquire the property and all maybe the challenges and everything else and how they're gonna address them. And then we go off on our ways and that's you know an hour or whatever it is. What I really love is the second scenario, which is someone who says, look, I'm gonna pick you up from the hotel and I'm going to drive you to the property. And on the way, I'm going to show you our six competitors. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you why I think this was a good deal based on what I see. And I'm going to show you other kind of indirect competitors in the market and why this location is a great location. And by the way, let's see some better locations to see how they compare. I'll show you how close it is to the freeway. And I can go on and on, right? So then you get this amazing perspective going to the property. And then when they take you back, they may show you some more stuff. And that just is a different level of detailed analysis that somebody has done on the area. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the numbers and looking at these numbers on a piece of paper that somebody gives you. That's why I like meeting in person because you get a whole different perspective and a different sense of this trust but verify. How well do they really know the market? That can show up in that type of a half an hour additional time in a car. I mean, I'm just mm-hmm. trying to keep it short here, but those are some examples, high level of some people just for, for anyone listening to think about how to really make sure that you know, you agree that you're on the same page and you've kind of used the trust but verify model.
0: We will continue this interview on the next episode. And I would like to give a big shout out to our latest reviewer, Luis Juan Siul. Thank you. Thank you so much for creating this podcast. I have been devouring your content. I'm a very small investor that only has invested in duplexes and single family homes. Commercial property investing is is something that's always intrigued me and by amazing luck, your podcast came into my life. I'm only four days in and already on the episode with Ellis Hammond on zero money down in investing in commercial real estate. Your information is gold and my goal, like yours, is to continue studying commercial real estate at least five hours a day and network until I get my first deal. Bottom line, thank you! You are most welcome, Luis. Thank you for taking the time to write this awesome review. I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing about your very first deal. Do you know anyone who might be interested in learning more about commercial real estate investing? Make sure to share this podcast with them. And also, now you can subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to the link under show notes. On the website. Put your email on top of the page under subscribe and we'll be sending some really valuable information straight to your inbox. See you next time!